This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story by Jamaica Kincaid called Figures in the Distance. I once had heard someone say about another dead person that it was as if the dead person were asleep. But I had seen a person asleep, and this girl did not look asleep. The story was chosen by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, whose story Birdsong was published in the September 20th issue of the magazine as part of our 20 Under 40 series. She has published two novels and a collection of short stories called The Thing Around Your Neck. Hi, Chimamanda. Hello, Deborah. So you were born in Nigeria and you lived there until you were 19. When did you start reading Jamaica Kincaid? Were you reading her back then or, or after you moved to the U.S.? I discovered her in America. I didn't read her in Nigeria. So I remember actually reading Lucy, which was the first thing of hers that I read. Lucy is her novel about being a nanny. Here. Yes, yeah. yes. So Lucy is, this, is the novel about uh, the character who comes from the Caribbean and who's a nanny in, in, in New York for a white American couple. And I read Lucy when I was also babysitting in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And it was just this wonderful discovery of a voice that was very familiar to me that made me feel not so alone. Mm-hmm. But also it wasn't just that. It was that there was just this wonderful poetry about the writing that just completely um, charmed me. How did you find the book? Was it something that was in the house where you were working? Or? Actually, I, how did I find I think it was probably at the library because I spent a lot of time at the library. So it must have been from the library. It, it certainly wasn't in the home of um, <laughs> the lovely okay. couple I was babysitting for, but I don't think they would have Jamaica Kincaid's kids. Yeah, novel. yeah. So then you tracked down the rest of her work. At so that I th- point. yeah, I then became really interested in reading her, and I think in in that year or in the year after, I read the autobiography of my mother. I read um, Annie John, and then I read a small place. Now Annie John, which you mentioned, is a novel, but the story you're reading today, figures in the distance, ended up being the first chapter of that novel. As a story, which is how it was first written and published uh, in the magazine, it concerns a child who's nine or ten, whose name we don't actually hear in the story, but who turns out to be Annie John, who's uh, obsessed with death and trying to grasp the notion of how it might relate to her. What was it about this chapter of the story that appealed to you most? One of the things I love about Jamaica Kincaid's work is that it seems to me that there's a willingness to confront darkness there's a kind of delicious darkness, at least for me, in her walk. And so to read about this child and to read about a child dealing with death in a way that in some ways is unexpected. You know, there's a, there's a sentence in the story in which the child is thinking about another child who died, who was humpbacked. And what she thought was she really wished she had tapped the humpback to know if it was hollow. <laughs> which isn't really what you would this, expect. This is her, her main <laughs> regret at the funeral. <laughs> she never touched the humpback. So I, I sort of really like that, that the darkness. because, in, And I like it because I think it's true. I think yeah. that there's a lot about childhood that is very dark. Yeah. It was also a, a sort of scientific approach in this child's <laughs> mind to, to a phenomenon that she's exploring. Yes. And that's probably quite accurate. And, and also the idea that, that, that she hadn't, um, you know, in, in general, I think as adults, we make a mystery of death. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that she had. And there's something very refreshing about that. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. Now here's Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, reading Figures in the Distance by Jamaica Kincaid. For a short while, one year during my summer holidays, I thought only people I did not know died. During the time I thought this, we were living far out on Fort Road on the island of Antigua. 
We had only two neighbors, Mistress Maynard and her husband. That summer we had a pig that had just had piglets, some guinea fowl, and some ducks that laid enormous eggs that my mother said were big even for ducks. I hated to eat any food except for the enormous duck eggs, hard-boiled. I had nothing to do every day except to feed the birds and the pig in the morning and in the evening. I spoke to no one other than my parents, and sometimes to Mistress Maynard if I saw her when I went to pick up the peelings of vegetables which my mother had asked her to save for the pig, which was just the thing the pig really liked. From our yard, I could see the cemetery. I did not know it was the cemetery until one day when I said to my mother that sometimes in the evening, while feeding the pig, I could see various small stick-like figures, some dressed in black, some dressed in white, bobbing up and down in the distance. I noticed, too, that sometimes the black and white stick-like figures appeared in the morning. My mother said that it was probably a child being buried, since children were always buried in the morning. Until then, I had not known that children died. I was afraid of the dead, as was everyone I knew. We were afraid of the dead because we never could tell when they might show up again. Sometimes they showed up in a dream, but that wasn't so bad because they usually only brought a warning. And in any case, you wake up from a dream. But sometimes they would show up standing under a tree, just as you were passing by. Then they might follow you home. And even though they might not be able to come into your house, they might wait for you and follow you wherever you went. In that case, they would never give up until you joined them. My mother knew of many people who had died in such a way. My mother knew of many people who had died, including her own brother. After I found out about the cemetery, I would stand in my yard and wait for a funeral to come. Some days, there were no funerals. No one died, I would say to my mother. Some days, just as I was about to give up and go inside, I would see the small specks appear. What made them so late? I would ask my mother. Probably someone couldn't bear to see the coffin lid put in place, and so, as a favour, the undertaker might let things go on too long, she said. The undertaker. On our way into town, we would pass the undertaker's workshop. Outside, a little sign read, Mr. J.A. Barnes and Sons, Undertakers and Cabinet Makers. I could always tell we were approaching this place because of the smell of pitch pine and varnish in the air. Later, we moved to a house closer to town, and I no longer had a view of the cemetery. Still, no one I knew had died. One day, a girl smaller than I, a girl whose mother was a friend of my mother's, died in my mother's arms. I did not know this girl at all, though I may have got a glimpse of her once or twice as I passed her and her mother coming out of our yard, and I tried to remember everything I had heard about her. Her name was Nalda. She had red hair. She was very bony. She did not like to eat any food. In fact, she liked to eat mud, and her mother always had to keep a strict eye on her to prevent her from doing that. Her father made bricks and her mother dressed in a way that my father found unbecoming. 
I heard my mother describe to my father just how Nalda had died. She had a fever. They noticed a change in her breathing, so they called a car and were rushing her off to Dr. Bailey when, just as they were crossing over a bridge, she let out a long sigh and went limp. Dr. Bailey pronounced her dead, and when I heard that, I was so glad he wasn't my doctor. My mother asked my father to make the coffin for Nalda, and he did, carving bunches of tiny flowers on the sides. Nalda's mother wept so much that my mother had to take care of everything. And since children were never prepared by undertakers, my mother had to prepare the little girl to be buried. I then began to look at my mother's hands differently. They had stroked the dead girl's forehead. They had bathed and dressed her and laid her in the coffin my father had made. My mother would come back from the dead girl's house smelling of bay rum, a scent that for a long time afterward would make me feel ill. For a while, though not for very long, I could not bear to have my mother caress me or touch my food or help me with my bath. I especially couldn't bear the sight of her hands lying still in her lap. At school, I told all my friends about this death. I would take them aside individually so I could repeat the details over and over again. They would listen to me with their mouths open. In turn, they would tell me of someone they had known or heard of who had died. I would listen with my mouth open. One person had known very well a neighbour who had gone swimming after eating a big lunch at a picnic and drowned. Someone had a cousin who, in the middle of something one day, just fell down dead. Someone knew a boy who had died after eating some poisonous berries. Fancy that, we said to each other. I loved very much, and so used to torment until she cried, a girl named Sonia. She was smaller than I, even though she was almost two years older, and she was a dunce, our class dunce. I would try to get to school early and give her my homework so that she could copy it, and in class I would pass her the answers to sums. My friends ignored her, and whenever I mentioned her name in a favourable way, they would twist up their lips and make a sound to show their disdain. I thought her beautiful, and I would say so, she had long, thick black hair that lay down flat on her arms and legs. And then, running down the nape of her neck, down the middle of her back for as far as could be seen before it was swallowed up by her school uniform, was a line of the same long, thick black hair. Only here, it fled out as if a small breeze had come and parted it. At recess... I would buy her a sweet, something called a frozen joy, with money I had stolen from my mother's purse. And then we would go and sit under a tree in our schoolyard. I would then stare and stare at her, narrowing and opening wide my eyes until she began to fidget under my gaze. Then I would pull at the hair on her arms and legs, gently at first, and then awfully hard, holding it up taut, with the tips of my fingers until she cried out. For a few weeks, she didn't appear in school, and we were told that her mother, who had been with child, had died suddenly. I couldn't ever again bring myself to speak to her, 
even though we spent two more years as classmates. She seemed such a shameful thing, a girl whose mother had died and left her alone in the world. Not long after the little girl died in my mother's arms on the way to the doctor, Miss Charlotte, our neighbour across the street, collapsed and died while having a conversation with my mother. If my mother hadn't caught her, she would have fallen to the ground. When I came home from school that day, my mother said, Miss Charlotte is dead. I had known Miss Charlotte very well, and I tried to imagine her dead. I couldn't. I did not know what someone looked like dead. I knew what Miss Charlotte looked like coming from market. I knew what she looked like going to church. I knew what she looked like when she told her dog not to frighten me by chasing me up and down the street. Once, when Miss Charlotte was sick, my mother asked me to take her a bowl with some food. So I saw her lying in her bed in her nightgown. Miss Charlotte was buried in a coffin my father did not make, and I was not allowed to go to the funeral. At school, almost everyone I knew had seen a dead person, and not a spirit of a dead person, but a real dead person. The girl who sat at the desk next to mine suddenly stopped sucking her thumb because her mother had washed it in water in which a dead person had been given a bath. I told her that her mother must have been playing a trick on her, that I was sure the water was just plain water, since it was just the sort of trick my mother would play on me. But she had met my mother, and she said that she could see they weren't alike at all. I began to go to funerals. I didn't actually go to the funerals as an official mourner, since I didn't know any of the people who had died, and I was going without my parents' permission. I visited the funeral parlours or the drawing rooms where the dead were laid out for viewing by the mourners. When I heard the church bell toll in the way it tolled when someone had died, I would try to find out who had died and where the funeral was to be, home or funeral parlour. The funeral parlour was in much the same direction as my route home, but sometimes to get to someone's house... I would have to go in the opposite direction of my way home. At first, I didn't go in. I would just stand outside and watch the people come and go, hear the close relatives and friends let out incredible loud wails and moans, and then watch the procession march off to church. But then I began to go in and take a look. The first time I actually saw a dead person, I didn't know what to think. Since it wasn't someone I knew, I couldn't make a comparison. I had never seen the person laugh or smile or frown or shoo a chicken out of a garden. So I looked and looked for as long as I could without letting anyone know I was just there out of curiosity. One day, a girl my own age died. I did not know her name or anything personal about her except that she was my own age and that she had a hump back. She attended another school, and on the day of her funeral, her whole school got the day off. At my school, it was all we could talk about. Did you know the humpbacked girl? I remembered once standing behind her in a line to take out books at the library. Then I saw a fly land on the collar of her uniform and walk up and down as the collar lay flat on her hump. 
On hearing that she was dead, I wished I had tapped the hump to see if it was hollow. I also remember that her hair was patterned into four plaits and that the parts were crooked. She must have combed her hair herself, I said. At last, though, someone I knew was dead. The day of her funeral, I bolted from school as soon as we finished the last amen of our evening prayers, and I made my way to the funeral home. When I got there, the whole street was full of girls from her school, all in their white dress uniforms. It was a big crowd of them, and they were just milling around, talking to each other quietly and looking very important. I didn't have time to stop and really envy them. I made my way to the door and entered the funeral parlour. There she was. She was lying in the regular pitch pine varnished coffin on a bed of mauve and white lilacs. She wore a white dress, and it may have come all the way down to her ankles, but I didn't have time to look carefully. It was her face that I wanted to see. I remembered how she had looked the day in the library. Her face was just a plain face. She had black eyes, flat nostrils, broad lips. Lying there dead, she looked just the same, except her eyes were closed and she was so still. I once had heard someone say about another dead person that it was as if the dead person were asleep. But I had seen a person asleep and this girl did not look asleep. My parents had just bought me a Viewmaster. The Viewmaster came with pictures of the pyramids, the Taj Mahal, Mount Everest, and scenes of the Amazon River. When the Viewmaster walked properly, all the scenes looked as if they were alive, as if we could just step into the Viewmaster and sail down the Amazon River or stand at the foot of the pyramids. When the Viewmaster didn't walk properly, it was as if we were just looking at an ordinary, colourful picture. When I looked at this girl, it was as if the viewmaster wasn't walking properly. I stared at her a long time, long enough so that I caused the line of people waiting to stop by the coughing to grow long and on the verge of impatience. Of course, as I stared, I kept my fingers curled up tight against my palms because I didn't want to make a mistake and point and then have them rot and drop off right there. I then went and sat among the mourners. Her family smiled at me, thinking, I am sure, that I was a school friend, even though I wore the uniform of another school. We sang a hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful, and her mother said it was the first hymn the humpbacked girl had learned to sing by heart. I walked home. By then I was very late getting home from school, but I was too excited to worry about it. I wondered if one day, while going somewhere alone, I would see the humpbacked girl standing under a tree, and if she would try to get me to go for a swim or eat a piece of fruit, and the next thing my mother would know, she would be asking my father to make a coffin for me. Of course he would be so overcome with grief, he wouldn't be able to do it and would have to ask Mr. Oti to do it, and he just hated to ask Mr. Oti to do him a favour because... As I had heard him tell my mother, Mr. Oti was such a leech, he made you pay for everything. When I got home, my mother asked me for the fish I was to have picked up from Mr. Earl 
our fisherman on the way home from school. But in my excitement, I had completely forgotten. Trying to think quickly, I said that when I got to the market, Mr. Earl told me that they hadn't gone to sea that day because the sea was too rough. Oh, said my mother, and uncovered a pan in which were lying flat on their sides and covered with lemon juice and butter and onions, three fish, an angel fish for my father, a kanya fish for my mother, and a lady fish for me, the special kind of fish each of us liked. While I was at the funeral parlour, Mr. Earl had got tired of waiting for me and had brought the fish to our house himself. That night, as a punishment, I ate my supper outside, alone, under the breadfruit tree, and my mother said that she would not be kissing me goodnight later. But when I climbed into bed, she came and kissed me anyway. That was Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie reading Jamaica Kincaid's Figures in the Distance, which was first published in The New Yorker in 1983 and later became the opening chapter of her novel, Annie John, published by Farrar, Strauss and Giroux. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down, so your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future, so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com actionplan Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-slash-dealer-affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Chimamanda, later in the novel, this girl Annie's relationship with her mother really falls apart, becomes very Oedipal, and she dreams of killing her mother, of her mother killing her, and death becomes very linked to the mother. Do you think... This story is a way of foreshadowing all that. Do you think it works by itself without the rest of the book? Oh, I think it works by itself. I think yeah. it works by itself as just this sort of, not so much a coming of age, it's sort of this child who's confronting and exploring this strange idea of death. But, you know, thinking about it as part of the novel, I mean, does it foreshadow in some ways? Yes. Mm-hmm. But then in others, it, I, I think that in the story, 
the sense one gets is that her mother really still is the buffer between her and and the rest of the world right. in many ways. But then as the novel progresses, the relationship falls apart. What's funny, there's such a complicated setup with this mother because on the one hand, she is a buffer and she is this sort of protector of the daughter. On the other hand, she's constantly being associated with death. Everything she touches dies. Well, she's the last, is, she catches well, the neighbor as she collapses. You know, this baby, this child dies in her arms. Yeah. What do you think we're supposed to feel about her? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. And, and a lot of Jimmy Kincaid's work is about the really prickly, complicated, yeah. vexed yeah. relationship between a daughter and a mother. Mm-hmm. The, the mother, in some ways, she seemed almost as though she had some, some kind of mystical power. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, we're supposed to think of her as um, supernatural. <laughs> yeah, well, like one of those, you know, spirits that pops yeah. up under a tree as <laughs> exactly. you're walking by. So she, in some ways, she's that and still yeah. mostly benign. Mm-hmm. When you think about what happens later in the book, you know, we can, we're still allowed to, if not like her, be fascinated by her. Mm-hmm. We don't sense that the character wants us to actively dislike her. Yeah, yeah. Well, death is still a mystery for, for this girl, but so is her mother in many ways, mm. it seems. Mm. Why do you think she fixates on death as she does? Does it have to do with just that proximity to the cemetery in their first house? Or is there something, mm. something sort of more sinister going on? Don't we all at some point confront yeah. death? I mean, I'm obsessed with death. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's part of the reason I identify with yeah. this. Because even as a yeah. child, and even now as an adult, I, yeah. for me, death is just endlessly fascinating subject mm-hmm. and idea. Do you think that her interest is, is healthy curiosity or do you think that there's something morbid about it? I think it's both. Yeah. I think there's the usual curiosity of a child, but obviously I think that um, it's clearly quite mm-hmm. morbid as well. I mean, a child that young who sort of goes to funerals, of strangers. Goes to funerals <laughs> <laughs> and wants to look at the, the face of a dead child, that, that something is very strange about that, but also very interesting. And I think it says something larger about, um, you know, I'm a believer in fiction sort of showing us the ways in which um, life is strange. Yeah. Right. And in terms of the, Sort of fiction, non-fiction question. I mean, Jamaica Kincaid has said many times that her work is very autobiographical, and this story is, you know, follows quite closely some of the details of her own life. Is this Jamaica whom we're dealing with? <laughs> As a fiction, writer, does it matter? Do does it change how you read it? I think that's a really interesting question because I think the answer I should give. Mm-hmm. is no, it doesn't matter. And, mm-hmm. you know, the only thing that matters is that it walks as fiction. Yeah. But I do think that knowing, because I sort of knew a bit about her life and I knew mm-hmm. that a lot of her work was, in fact, autobiographical, I think it did change how I read it. And, you know, I'm a very happy fiction writer and I think that fiction is incredibly important. But I think that knowing that she had based a lot of her work on her life gave it a kind of power. One thing it, it gives it for me is a context. Mm. A larger context, mm. because you, you look at this girl and you think, okay, well, she is going to be okay. <laughs> you know? It's not, this isn't, you know, she's not going to die next week. But see, I do, I do, I've never really needed to, um, I've just never needed happy endings. I'm quite mm. happy with, you know, everything mm-hmm. being dark all the way to the end. But at the same time, I think that, um, you know, I'm very grateful that Jamaica Kincaid ended up writing this just really wonderful stories Yeah. after having had a childhood that, similar to to the childhood of the character she writes about. Yeah. I find the ending of this very interesting, and I don't know quite what to make of it. She comes home, she gets caught in a lie. She's sent out to 
eat by herself. But then her mother says, I'm not going to kiss you. And then she kisses her anyway. Mm. And again, it's I don't know quite what we're supposed to think of this mother, whether she's malevolent or whether she's benign at this point. I think she's still largely benign. Yeah. In, you know, she doesn't really... I mean, the punishment is quite mild as well. It's sort of yeah. go eat alone, right? And <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine much more interesting forms of punishment, such mm-hmm. as you're not having supper. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there was no fish that you didn't bring it home. You don't get any. There's, um, there's a matter-of-fact tone to the way that mm-hmm. she writes in this story mm-hmm. that, for me, again, going back to this issue of fiction or, or memoir makes it feel a little bit like a diary. Mm. She includes all of these sort of mm. facts that are slightly beside the point that have no mm. bearing on anything else, you know, like the fact she only wants to eat hard-boiled duck eggs and so on. What do you think I, they add to the, I to just, the story? I love that. I love that. She, I just absolutely <laughs> love that she does yeah. that. I love... There is, a, there is very much, you're right, a matter-of-fact tone, but also there's a poetry to her writing. And mm-hmm. I think it's in the way that um, there's the rhythm of her sentences. Mm-hmm. I mean, the details matter, I think. The details matter in, in creating the world in which she inhabits. The details matter because it gives us a sense of what she is like. I mean, she's a strange child. Mm-hmm. And I think that those details sort of establish her strangeness. And because of those details, when she then goes on to become this sort of death-obsessed child, it, mm-hmm. I'm less surprised and I'm more believing Because you feel that she's noticing everything. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Chimamanda. Thank you, Deborah. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie is the author of Purple Hibiscus and Half a Yellow Sun, both of which are available in paperback from Anchor. You can subscribe to this podcast and download previous episodes in the iTunes store. Just do a search for New Yorker. Let us know what you think of this program on our Facebook page. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.